This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. She quietly murmurs that she doesn't want him to go, that she doesn't want him to stop kissing her. He gives her several short but wonderfully passionate kisses. The next kiss is the most unbelievable one she's had in her life. He gives her one final lingering kiss. This is the only thing she's ever wanted. Then Aiden walks out to pee in the brown trees. He gets a beer out of his truck and leans against his door and cracks the beer and stays for a few more minutes. Later, she will text him. Thank you for taking the time, for spending so much time with me today. If you ask her how long it was, she will say, gee, I'd say it was almost 30 minutes. This is only one of dozens and dozens of passages that poignantly, provocatively, and perceptively describe the emotional landscape of three women that journalist Lisa Tadeo studied for eight years, resulting in a book that Refinery29 describes as a book that pays deep and solemn attention to the link between a woman's body and heart and sense of self. Three Women is Lisa's debut nonfiction. Her writing has received two Pushcart Prizes and been included in Best American Sports Writing and Best American Political Writing. Three Women is one of the most buzzed about books for the summer, and I am delighted to welcome Lisa Tadeo to Just the Right Book for a Conversation. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to start with something you wrote in the prologue. Mm -hmm. It's the nuances of desire that hold the truth of who we are at our rawest moments. I set out to register the heat and sting of female want so that men and other women might more easily comprehend before they condemn, because it's the quotidian minutes of our lives that will go on forever that will tell us who we were, who our neighbors and our mothers were, when we were too diligent in thinking they were nothing like us. This is the story of three women. So tell us about the three women. The first woman I found, uh, Lena, was a super, is a suburban housewife in Indiana. And when I met her, she was about to embark on two very life-changing things. The first was that she was planning to ask her husband for a divorce because she had been married to him for 11 years. And it was largely passionless. But in the past uh, year, they had been seeing a couples therapist. And he said that he no longer wanted to kiss her on the mouth, that the sensation offended him. And the couples therapist agreed that that was okay. And the second thing was that Lena was about to embark on a relationship, an intimate relationship with her high school lover, Aiden, with whom she had recently reconnected on Facebook. Second woman, Maggie, as a high school student, allegedly had a consensual relationship with her high school English teacher who went on to be awarded Teacher of the Year of North Dakota. And she brought the case to trial and the results of the trial upended their community. And the third woman, Sloan, is a poised and beautiful entrepreneur in the Northeast whose husband likes to watch her have sex with men and other women. So how did you 
find these? Well, well, let me even take a step back. What was your hope in starting this journey? I mean, it was eight years with these women. So let's start with what you were, what even motivated you in the first place. I, you know, it started the, it started very, it evolved into what it's become, but it began with, I just wanted to write about desire from a female perspective. I did mm-hmm. not know I was going to write about only women and these three specific women. So I started very, um, I was bouncing all over the place. I began by going to the porn castle that's no longer there in the armory of the Mission District in San Francisco. I was profiling two queer women there. One um, who was directing, uh, was a director and she was directing her girlfriend in, you know, these movies where she was having sex with men. And, you know, so I started there. There was there were a lot of, you know, there were a lot of false starts. And, you know, as you mentioned, it was eight years. I drove across the country six times posting these desire flyers asking if anybody had a compelling story of unrequited love or, you know, something compelling that was also, I needed someone to be honest um, having a compelling narrative and be okay with letting a total stranger into their lives. So that was the genesis was to, you know, find that the, that desire is, you know, the thing that we potentially think the most about and the thing we hold closest to the chest and exploring the nuance of that intersection. How did you recruit them? And then how did you whittle it down to these three women? So the recruitment process was the hardest of everything that I did. It was, it was, I, I did a variety, a medley of things. I, you know, I did post it on Craigslist. I went into bars and asked people when the last time they had sex was. I, I just did, you know, I posted flyers up on the windows of cars. Were you ever threatened? No, I wasn't threatened. I did get, you know, unsolicited, you know. Um, Proposals. Yes, yes. and they Propositions. Of, yes. Propos- and some of them were quite profane, but... I mean, I, no, I was not threatened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so in terms of the whittling down process, you know, there was, there were about, there were hundreds of people I spoke to, men and women, and there were 15 or so that I spoke to at length, like more than four months. And or and I moved to some of their towns also, but did not end up using them, which was... Wow. Well, some of them, most of the ones I'd moved to, I, I'd moved there because they were compelling enough to talk to at length. Most of those people just didn't, like didn't want their themselves in a book, even if names and details were changed. And you know what's actually interesting about that is I was speaking to another writer who does this this love column in the UK, and she said that you know her question is interestingly because it's funny. I was that was the one I was asking is when was the last time you had sex, and that's the column which I think is brilliant. And she was having this girls' night, you know, with a couple of her friends, and her best friend said, you know, told them the story of this illicit affair she was about to embark on, and the writer was like, "Can I tell that story?" Because she didn't have anything for the next day. And her friend said, no. And she's like, you know, the writer was like, yeah, I'm going to change everything. You know that I will. You know what I do. And she's like, I don't care. I just don't want that out in the air. I don't want Mm. it to like sort of get like find oxygen. And that's what a lot of the people who didn't want to go through with it felt that the idea that their story would be out in the world was, was frightening. And did that surprise you? Well, not in the sense that I don't think I would do it. You know, I don't think I, I would. Yeah, I mean, also the other aspect of it is there's they're not the subjects didn't really get anything out of it. You know, like to sort of, I mean, I think they did. Sorry, emotionally, but in terms of like a transactional, there was no like you know they're not being paid. They're not necessarily getting anything except for someone listening to them, which is great. 
But at the same time, you know, there's so many risks involved that I was just so amazed and grateful for everything that they told me and how long they gave me. So why do you think these three women did agree? And not that it would be the same, but what do you think motivated each of these women? I mean, you're saying they listened. I was, they were heard. Right. Well, that might be powerful enough right. for some people, but what do you think motivated each of them? Well, I think that the element of being heard is is the main thing, but I, I think if we unpack that a little bit, the main, the thing that, um, the thread that united all of them was that they were all being, in some sense, reviled by their community or judged yeah. by it. And, you know, for example, Maggie, uh, you know, in her, in her town, the people were listening to the teacher, were, were, you know, were on the teacher's side. It was, you know, it was a lot of reasons for that, but one of them was because she was, you know, a young woman from, you know, not the good side of town that yeah. he was on. And, you know, there was a lot of that. Alina came from a very traditional Catholic family. And she was taught that, you know, divorce was, you know, completely awful and the last thing that anyone should do. So she couldn't have told anyone what was going on. And Sloan, literally, I think she only told her best friend besides me, nobody else. I mean, there were rumors about it, but she didn't talk about it. She didn't confirm them. Right, exactly. Um, so they all, in that sense, wanted to be heard, and they also weren't being heard otherwise, and they were being judged. And I think the other thread that unites them is that they didn't judge other people, you know? And mm. I think there's a lot of people who do. We we all do to some extent, but they really, I mean, nothing, because I think they were getting so much from others that they weren't they weren't interested in, you know, they, they felt it so so deeply that they didn't want to do it to other people. You know, so one of the things, so talking about this common element of their being judged. So for each of them, there was a moment for me that just almost split open my heart. And one was, so Lena, as you said, came from this, you know, Catholic family. She had been kind of unpopular, then started dating Aiden, who was kind of a cool guy, and as a result got invited to what she thought was a party and ended up being raped by mm -hmm. three guys. And that was it for her for the rest of high school, mm -hmm. that it was viewed as that she was a whore. And when I read that, you thought, wow, there was no way to overcome that that reputation now in indelible ink. Mm -hmm. How did she talk about trying to overcome that? Did she retreat? Or what surprised you when you were talking to her as she relayed that experience? Well, what was really interesting was the, the first time she said it um, was in this discussion group that um, we had, I'd started in Indiana, uh, where it was very informal, but Lena and several other um women were, you know, talking about their love lives. And when Lena, I think the first time Lena spoke, she said, you know, that she had been, she told that story. Um, and then she said, you know, but it's no big deal. I didn't get a disease from it or get pregnant. And, you know, we just move on. And, and, you know, I didn't even ask her about, like, we talked a lot about that experience, but we didn't, I wasn't like, you know, I never led her with questions. I would assume not. Um. So, but she just kind of, you know, came to these realizations about how that had affected her, how her mother 
had affected her, you know, and I think that, you know, that's one of the other things that I, I found from this, this, you know, research and talking to so many people was that our mother's um, influence or the way that they are, the way that they talk about desire, the way that they allow us to desire or not is such a huge aspect. Speaking of mothers, at the end of the book, when you talk about your own mom and her dying, she said she wanted to talk with you about something that sounded very important. What was it she wanted to share with you? She said to me that I should never let anybody see me happy. Mm. I mean, she had said that in various ways, you know, in less um, less pointed ways throughout my life. Like I just sort of absorbed the lesson. But that was like one of the final things she said to me. <laughs> it was a lot. <laughs> Wait, so it didn't surprise you? No, not surprised. It surprised me that that was one of the last things she was going to say to me. Yeah. Um, it didn't surprise me that that was something she felt. And did you agree with her? You know, I, I'd i like to not. And sometimes it changes, you know. I mean, um, I think – and that's the thing. That's what I learned from – the book. I mean, if you from researching the book, if you just look at like that that moment with Lena and the discussion in the conference room when she when she talks about you know she's gone from this very painful you know conversation about what her husband doesn't want to how her husband doesn't want to kiss her on the mouth how it's you know an offensive sensation to walking in like the next time and saying that she had reconnected with. Aiden and how she now felt all of her pain had gone away, her fibromyalgia, everything just lifted. And they and liked her better the first the first time. Yeah. And after that, they just kind of all they were like they started, they just they were judging her and they judged her privately when they talked to me afterwards. And, you know, some of them were like, well, who's this guy? They wanted to make sure that the guy she was talking about was not their husband. So, you know, there's fear. And I think that when we fear and feel shame, we start to project that onto others. The other scene that brought me back to your mother's advice is, so Maggie ultimately brings charges against Aaron, who was uh, the teacher. And there were a couple of things, there were more than a couple of things in that trial that, that were sort of stunning. One was when... Uh, the lawyer brought up Miss North Dakota mm -hmm. and who had the same teacher and said, well, he didn't want to, mm -hmm. he didn't want to have sex with her and she's much prettier than mm -hmm. Maggie. So th that settles that, right? Mm -hmm. If you're not going to have sex with a pretty person, yes. why would you have sex with the unpretty person? Uh, which I couldn't even hold those thoughts together. It was shocking. In my head. But the other was... What do you think motivated the betrayal by Maggie's friends? You know, I don't, I don't know. And you know, in sort of the, um, in the, in towards the end. I mean, I still talk to Maggie almost every day, but towards the last reporting, uh, the last few months of the reporting of the book, she found out that one of her best friends had said. Um, okay, so what, even if that happens, like, why is she bringing us all into it? Like, why did she, you know, why does she just leave it get be. over it? Yeah. And it was one of her best friends. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know. I think that, you know, as her mother said, which I thought was a really, um, really, really intelligent and clear 
quote, um, she says that, you know, nobody wanted to believe that this nice young man had done what he did. Mm. It was easier to have, you know, to revile Maggie. And the thing I've, I noticed about her, the, you know, the reason I saw right away why, you know, you meet her in person and she's very, she's a little bit brazen, but not mm-hmm. in a not in a way that's off-putting. It's we just, don't like that. But we don't like, yeah. We don't like, like brazen women. No. Mm-mm. And especially when she's on the stand, it was like if she had been crying, she would have, you know, people would have felt differently. The jury, like, you know, they some of them said that off the record, you know, and yeah, I mean that that's yeah, we don't like brazen women. We don't we don't like We don't them. like brazen happy women exactly. apparently. So that's the worst thing you can be is a brazen happy woman. Oh yeah, yeah. So <laughs> so Lisa, let me ask you this question. Yeah. What well, there's a couple things that come to mind. Do you think the three women's lives were changed by the process of spending time telling their story? Yes, I do. Um I think that that all three of uh, Maggie said to me the other day that she feels a sense of closure that mm-hmm. you know she's worried and nervous as I think you know I keeps me up at night what you know what the same sort of people who you know judged her in the past might do again um so you know but but she has felt she says she feels closure like it's you know just the idea that her story's out that her you know that someone's hearing her and you know I, the other two also you know they've told me that like the sort of process has brought up things and has helped them better understand themselves. And how would you say what you hope to achieve or what you set out to write? How does that jive with what you ended up with? <laughs> Almost not at all. <laughs> yeah. It's like um, 180. Yeah, completely. You know, cause I, I didn't, one of the, you know, books that I read that sort of spawned, the idea was Gay Talese's Thy Neighbor's Wife, which I, what I loved about it was the immersive quality. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I found it to be a very male take on sexuality. So I did know that I wanted it to be more nuanced and, you know, told from a female perspective. I didn't know that it was going to be only women. I didn't I didn't know any. I wouldn't. I wasn't looking for anything. The only specific thing I was looking for were compelling stories that were honest. I really was hoping for something immediately unfolding, which is what Lena was, and that was like mm-hmm. a. Sh- it was literally happening before my eyes. She had no one to talk to and wanted to talk, and I wanted to listen. So it was like a perfect storm. Did you ever worry that, given that you embedded with them, that there was that you were living in their communities, that you would lose your journalistic independence? No. Um, and the reason is because I always it was always very clear that I was the one asking the questions and they were the ones answering them. Um, so you know, there was either a tape recorder, I was taking notes on my phone, even when we were out, you know, like even when we were getting a drink or working out together, it was all, I was like, you know, I would ask them a question and then their answer I would just record or, you know, write down. So they must have trusted you. Yes. I mean, but what I also did tell them was that they could tell me, you know, anything. And then if they decided later that they didn't want it to be included, they could tell me that. So I did that to, you know, to sort of make it, make to make it easy and to make them not afraid and not even for any sort of journalistic strategy, but just because I wouldn't want to, you know, talk about something someone didn't want to talk to, especially like I've never, you know, I've never been someone who's wanted to do that. And did you interview friends or 
I know you interviewed moms. I int- I was one of my early hopes was to have a family of either a mother and a father or two mothers and, you know, uh, with children um, who I could like. So I wanted to talk to each member of the family and uncles aunts, and sort of branch out from there, mm-hmm. um, follow all those threads, have a sort of uniting element. Right. So, you know, after I was in Lena's, um, Lena's and Sloan's towns, I was very, I became, you know, I was talking to many people in each of them. So one of my thoughts was to just do a town with the people that I spoke to. And mm-hmm. like, you know, Indiana felt really great because it was nearly in the middle of the country and it was, but ultimately, you know, when I found Maggie and her story, I was like, well, I can't just do Indiana anymore because that was so just compelling and I, it was clearly going to be one of the the stories. Yeah. And, you know, one of the – I'm going to see if I can get uh, the page. And I wondered if a lot of people could relate to this. So I'm going to condense a couple of paragraphs. Lena was raised not to talk about emotions. Her parents were fluent in the language of, oh, God, Lena, you're fine. Enough, Lena. Get over it, Lena. You have it good enough, Lena. When she got – when she became a mother, she got a little respect. She ended up with fibromyalgia and other kind of ailments. And then it says, now Lena gets these pains and she believes in her clearer moments that the pains are the heartaches of the past, of being lonely for 11 years, of being raped, of being lonely her whole life. She knows there are women out there whose husbands don't want to fuck them or French kiss them, and they will understand her. But a lot of people will tell her to shut up, to be happy with her children, her nice house, and this was one of my favorite lines, and she and Ed even had a generator in case of storms. Mm -hmm. How much was that a theme that it ought to be good enough for these women and wanting, and and so your husband wasn't interested in sex, so you had a relationship Mm -hmm. with your teacher, so your husband Mm -hmm. wants to watch you have sex. Really, are you making too much out of it? Was there a lot of that? Yes, and nearly every every woman's story I spoke, every woman that I spoke to, there was a you know an element of not wanting more than if you had it's it's yeah you have it good enough and that's and you know I mean there's a lot going on out there that's terrible so there's a sense of you know but it, it wasn't the people who were and Lena's house was nice yes. and. Yes, but Lena still struggles with money. You know, she's st- her house is nice. Um, you know, there's land is very inexpensive where she is in Indiana. Um, so, you know, it's it's a nice house, but at the same time she struggles to, you know, now especially that she's divorced, um which ended up happening, yeah. she is never a good economic move. Exactly. And not for you know, a woman and not for where they're they're at. And so she like is working all these odd jobs and cleaning houses and babysitting other kids. Um, that are not mm-hmm. her children. And she's, you know, she's like, she's still, she counts it down to the dollar, everything that she does. So people say you had it good enough. And then she made a change and people were even, you know, like, well, you shouldn't have done, like, you know, now you don't have any money. You didn't have that much money then. But yeah, like you, you really blew it, don't. sweetie. Yeah, exactly. So Lisa, what do you think? I mean, when I read this, I, aside from being utterly engrossed in it and not being able to put it down, it made me sad because, you know, I'm 70 and you would have thought that when I saw things in my 20s, I would have thought so much 
would have changed. So mm-hmm. did you walk away with any sense of how change, what would be the ingredients of there being change? Or do you see threads of change? I think there's, you know, I think there's a lot of change. And, you know, one of the things that I think is going on with the Me Too movement is that, you know, we're talking about what we don't want, but we're still not necessarily talking about what we do want. And I think that's the largest issue that hasn't changed and that Mm -hmm. should change. But, you know, ultimately, I don't think the desire changes. I think what changes is the way that we talk about it and the way that we feel like we can talk about it. And I think that depends on the political climate and who, you know, who the people are in our lives, what communities we live in, how many, who our friends are. What do you think each of us as women can do to help that change? Because one of the things that occurred to me, and I mentioned this to you before the interview, that I know someone that I realized, wow, I think I've judged them. Mm-hmm. that they've been a person who always seemed like a little too interested in sex with too many people for my taste. Mm-hmm. And I realized, wow, I wonder, A, if I'm being prejudiced about, well, that's their desire. What, you know, what business is it mm-hmm. of mine? But the other is, do I really understand what's driving that behavior? Is that, mm-hmm. you know, you have an, you've got, as I said in the introduction, dozens of quotes here that I would want to pin on a board as a reminder of how to pay attention to other women. And and one of them is about this idea of they don't feel whole mm-hmm. and therefore sex fills that need in them. And I don't know, I mean, I consider myself relatively self-aware and I'm thinking, wow, I bet, I bet I've been pretty judgy about some women's behavior. Well, I mean, I think we all are and we all do it at various times. You know, I think that it's kind of hard to extricate that because a lot of the things that we do and think are, you know, fears that we have and shame. that, we, Like, you know, when Lena came into that room and, you know, and talked about Aiden, some, the women who were like, who, who is it? Is it, you know, she didn't say his name so at first. So they were like, is it my husband? You know, so that's – and so they started mm. shaming her because it's that fear – you know, is it my husband? Is it, is it, is he better than my husband? Is, you know, there's a lot of that that goes on. And I think it's because, you know, it's, it's repressive to not be able to talk about stuff. It's, I was talking about with someone earlier today that, you know, like we, we judge because it's like men have men, you know, for the most part, there's competition with men, but it's okay to be competitive man against man. But women that's against, legit. Yes, exactly. But women competing is not. And it's like, you know, it's also it's called, you know, just it's it's just denigrated and it's just not seen and heard. And, you know, and I think the other part of it is that there's a lot of talk of sisterhood right now, which is great. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of uniting. But there's still, you know, a lot of not that happening. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, just in terms of of sexual acts. You know, there was a couple, a married couple who I was interviewing and the man told me that he just wanted to have sex with his wife out on the deck of their house. And she always said, no, you know, that's disgusting. I don't want the neighbors to see, which is fine, right? That's her. Then she cheated on him with a heroin dealer and they had sex once underneath the train station, underneath the train of an, in Newark, New Jersey. And, you know, and she told me that separately. So it was so, you know, it's like, so we, 
we mock and shame things during the day that we might do at night or even something more profane according to whomever's judging it. You know, that story reminds me, was there someone whose story you thought you wished you had been able to include in the book, but they weren't willing? Absolutely. There was one. Well, there were two. There was a man and a woman, both of them in Los Angeles, where I had moved for, I'd moved there for the man. I mean, not for the man. <laughs> yeah. Relationship sense. I moved there for Not him. to start dating him. <laughs> no. He was a philosopher who was very good looking. And I had heard, you know, about, at that point I was looking, because I had these two women who were both lovely women, but they were both also a little downtrodden. And I was looking for somebody at that point who would flip that dynamic a little bit. Yeah. Um, not even socioeconomically, just, you know, in terms of, you know, just in being more in control because I felt that I wanted more of a, you know, a, just a, a difference, um, a little bit of variety in that sense. And so the man was really good looking. He was a philosopher. I mean, I'm still careful. I mean, that's true, but I'm still careful about how, you know, I yeah, describe the people who – and he, his wife, who was, you know, every woman who had told me about him, a lot of these people I found via like rumors, a lot of the women who told me about him said, you know, his wife's not even that pretty and she doesn't want to sleep with him. And like if I were with him, I would, you know, and there was a lot of oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And his wife was perfectly, you know, good looking. He was extraordinarily good looking and he was a philosopher and, you know, there was a lot of- He anyway, had all the- yes, He had all it all going on. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, with him, I kind of let- him go because there was a point at which, you know, he came into a coffee shop that we were meeting at and he told me that about this masseuse that he is seeing for his back pain. And he was like, you know, uh, she wants to run away with me. And it was, he was like, now, like he had been bemoaning the loss of sex in his marriage. And now all of a sudden it was flipping. And I was like, kind of, I was not moved by that. Mm -hmm. It made me feel... Did it feel unauthentic? It did. Yeah. I was wondering if everything he had told... And I don't think it was a lying. I just think that everything he had told me up till then did not feel... Mm. It just didn't feel real. Yeah. It, so, it recolored yes, what you would heard. Exactly. So Lisa, your book's coming out, you know, this summer. What do you hope the impact of it will be? You've put eight years into this. What if if you had a magic wand that could make the impact be what you would dream of, what would that be? Uh, two things. The first being that um the first being that people would see that, you know, judging other people, specifically women, is, you know, it's just not it's something that we should stop. We should try to stop it on a very granular level and then hopefully it'll affect change on a larger level, like all things. And the other thing that um, a male reader of the book told me that I found really wonderful, because it was definitely, it wasn't like a conscious goal on my part, but specifically when I was writing Lena's section, it was something that I really was hoping it would be conveyed through her, through her story was that, anyway, the man said to me, you know, I didn't know until I finished the book how indifference could be so hurtful to another yeah. human being. And so I think that that's, that's huge. And not just for men to see, but any whoever is the sort of, you know, leader or the alpha in a relationship to just not stop seeing someone, in, like not stop seeing them, but like, you know, even if you don't want to be with that person, if that person texts you or calls you, to just never answer again to me seems, you know, unless the person did something terrible to you. But if it's just like a person, a man or a woman who like just loves you and you just don't respond, I don't think there's anything worse you can do to a human being. 
You know, and the thing that I would leave our listeners with when I think about the impact of the book, a couple of things that were very striking to me. If you could see the book that I have in front of me, I've got like dozens of post-its because there were so many scenes for each of the women that the way you wrote it, Lisa, I felt like, oh my God, I'm hearing about this or understanding it for the first time ever, because I really felt like I was in their shoes. The way you, you know, took quotes from them or your own writing of it. So, you know, as a reader and as a woman, what I would hope for the book is that it starts conversations. Because what I could imagine is this book being read by, you know, gazillions and gazillions of book clubs where the women are honest in having the conversation about these women, including saying, why would Maggie do this? You know, why didn't Sloan do this? Why mm-hmm. didn't Lena do that? Because I think that if they, if people, if women and men start having the conversation, I mean, I think everyone needs to be reading and talking about this book because change will come when people understand that this could be, this could be them. Mm-hmm. And it's not like, oh, you know, that low-income person over there or Mm -hmm. this person who had a bad mother or they drank, so of course that happened. You know, like we like to separate ourselves from bad outcomes. Yes. And what I think this does is bring it in and say, no, no, sweetie, this could be you. Yeah. And you're part of this. Yes. That's that's So that's what we'll hope for. Yeah. (laughs) All right? Yes. So we've been talking to Lisa Tadeo, who is the author of Three Women, a book you'll, I think, be hearing about for a very deserved long time. So Lisa, thank you for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.